Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus. Today I'm joined by Rebecca Robbins, Global Chief Learning and Culture Officer at renowned brand consultancy Interbrand, and Julia Ahrens, Stylus's own Editor of Media and Marketing. Every year, Interbrand compiles a list of the top 100 best brands in the world, and this year is the 20th anniversary of the list, so we wanted to delve into the current list and find out what makes a great brand, but also look at what's changed over the years and what brand building may look like in the future. So, Rebecca, first of all, could you tell us about the Best Global Brands list and uh, how is it put together and what's the methodology? So I'm actually going to go back to the beginning in terms of how brand valuation came about because it came and emerged from a real business need. We often talk about the brands that have been born over the years from creativity within constraint. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about some examples of that within our latest top 100. Um, but in a way, actually, brand valuation was born of creativity from constraint. We we were working actually at the time and having conversation with Rank Hovis McDougall back in the day, long before the... These, uh, the, these past 20 years, and they were under hostile takeover bid. And they were concerned that the value that was wrapped up in their brand wasn't being recognized. And hence, that was really the very beginnings in terms of establishing a methodology for valuing brands. Um, and a couple of points to make on this. First of all, you can't pay to be in it. So we're um, happy to try, but you, but, <laughs> but you can't pay to be in our list. We actually invest in this pretty, pretty hard and fast as thought leadership. So having been the, the, the consultancy and the brand that actually pioneered brand valuation as a method methodology, we also see it as a bit of a responsibility in terms of carrying that flame forward. Um, and a couple of points to make. Obviously, the clue is in the clue is in the title, Global Brands. You have to be global to be in the top 100. And second of all, we can only do this if the data is public. The data is out there in the public domain. So they are a couple of uh, important things to keep in mind. The methodology itself, um, pretty straightforward. Uh, there is, I mean, again, as with all these things, it's a proprietary methodology, but we are as transparent and open uh, as we can be about this. And there are three fundamental pieces to it. First of all, financial analysis, which is pretty straightforward, looking at economic profit. Second of all, which is role of brand. So when you think about decisions that we all make day to day in terms of the purchases we make, be it products, be it experiences, to, to what extent is, is a lot of that attributed to the brand versus other things such as price, convenience, product attributes? So hence, when we come to talk a little bit more about luxury, um, luxury has the highest role of brand of any other sector or industry. The third piece, which is I get where I get really excited, is almost like the engine room of the analysis, which is brand strength. And we have uh, 10 factors that we index and rank each brand on. Four of them are internal factors on the inside that look at uh, the employee, the culture, uh, and everything that's going on on the inside of the business, and six factors that look at the consumer perspective. Uh, and we can, again, go, go into that in a, little, in a little bit more detail. But what it really does is unlock what is going on under the, under the hood of the brand. Great. So perhaps you could take us through some of the, the star players from this year. What's, uh, who's... who's Jumping up the rankings and and who's yeah. who's not. So twenty nineteen has been uh, been a tough one, really. Like, where do you draw the line? We've got twenty years of data, so when you start looking at those stories, it, it really it really is phenomenal. Um, and we'll look also, I think, at the brands who are still there from the very beginning and those those who have, who have uh, who have slipped uh, along the way. 
A couple of things to lead into this. I think there are some common themes that we've seen in terms of the brands who have been either growing exponentially or consistently growing very strong. And and there are some other factors that we see in terms of those who have really sort of shot up in the past year or two. Across the board, though, in all the fastest growing brands, there are two of the brand strength factors that we see show up hard and fast, which are relevance and responsiveness. So the ability of these brands to be making bold moves out there with customers and employees alike, and crucially then to be following through on those commitments. How are they showing up hard and fast in terms of what they're saying? And the other thing is also this, we we talk about the relationship between brands and culture, but we've seen a big shift in recent years in if we think about the narrative as there's been a lot around consumers and influencers and let's be honest a lot of brands have forgotten their employees along the way um, what we've seen actually is a lot of brands now catching up hard and fast to that investing in culture learning and talent future skills upskilling cross-skilling so a little bit of context in terms of the commonalities of themes to the top growing brands um, let's begin with the the top, the top growing brand in this year's list, which is Mastercard, up twenty five percent increase in brand value. Uh, very interesting. Also, when you look back twenty years, at the beginning there were only two financial services brands in the list, and that has grown exponentially over the years. Um, when you look at Mastercard, you think, ah, what are they? What are they really being doing in terms of that level of double digit increase in brand value, which is not insignificant? And I think it begins with actually they've really asked themselves a hard question around what business are we in, and what business do we need to be in, and why. And that's quite interesting when you think about the brands that are still being defined by their category versus brands that are that are actually defining categories or even defying them. So they've been very overt about shifting from a card-based, payments-based business to looking at putting much more human-centered technology at the center, investing in much more experiential marketing. They've doubled down also on their commitments to their employees. And that's also shown up hard. They've matched what they're saying, what they're doing. So again, the two have gone hand in hand. And you see their name has disappeared from their logo. They've invested in sonic branding, again, pivoting hard into in terms of voice-enabled, not even futures, but actually voice-enabled presence. So uh, again, a lot of tangible, experiential things, hard commitments made not only this year and the past couple of years, but really that we can see, see, see sustaining into the future as well. And that's another thing when you ask about the methodology, we're looking at how much do these brands have the ability to sustain that value and loyalty over the long term. Do you think that MasterCard has innovated in this way because of pressures from smaller brands, challenger brands? Because obviously the financial fintech sector has been transformed over the past five years and those sorts of smaller brands don't feature in your lists so much. Yet. uh, Yet. (laughs) But clearly the impact that they're having on the market is is relevant to to why someone like MasterCard is rising. 100%. And again, there is also creativity from healthy competition. Uh, And I think it's a really interesting question around where disruption comes from because it is part of that provocation. Uh, and and also disruption, I think, again, MasterCard has proved that levels of disruption are not disconsonant with being a larger global brand. Uh, again, I think we, we, we've come to sort of lock up the two, as you say, from startups, um, newly emerged brands. Um, but actually, that those we're seeing levels of, of, of disruption uh, show up in very different ways. And again, we'll come on to talk to that, I guess, when we look at some of the uh, some of the luxury brands and also why luxury has been the top performing industry for the past two years in a row. Very interesting. 
I mean, I, I want to talk about luxury, but I think it's interesting that the, first, the top three brands, Apple, Google, and Amazon, mm. right? Um, so we're looking at tech sort of dominating, yes. but you're saying luxury is, is the fastest growing. Fastest growing in terms of the industry across, across the board. What's interesting in those three brands that you mentioned also is, and I asked this question at a conference um, recently, if we think about, it doesn't need to be the past 20 years, even though obviously we're celebrating 20 years of doing this, but if we think about which brands have changed our behaviour, not just which brands have changed our perception or our perspective on something, but which brands have actually made us do something differently, whether it's in our day-to-day, week-to-week activity. Um, and I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear your your answer to that, and maybe we could uh, we could crowdsource that to the audience. But if you think about it, those three brands have done just that. Well, it's interesting that they have. Um, are they still though? I mean, Apple it, Apple surprised me at being number one, to be honest, because I I feel like. Well, I say this. I feel like they haven't been innovating. Clearly, mm-hmm. the Apple Watch is a huge success, despite sort of media somewhat indifference to it, um, and the, and the new phones are going down very well. But it doesn't feel like from the days of Steve Jobs, they've made this great leap in the past few years to, to some sort of new innovation. Mm. Is that That's clearly not what you feel at Interbrand because you're, you have them at the number one position. Well, again, I think what's interesting, and, and this will also be consonant to some extent when we look at the sheer spectrum of, of value and the sheer numbers from Freeton, for example, at one end <laughs> to Prada at the other. So, And it's not dissimilar to this conversation in, in the context of the sheer numbers that we're looking at and those three brands are so vastly different from, from everything below the, the sort of top 10, top 20 mark. We're in, we're, in very different, we're in very different spaces. And again, bearing in mind that the economic profit is a huge part of that. So again, those coupling the, the brand strength is the brand strength analysis is exactly where some of what you're talking about shows up. But again, bearing in mind that role of brand influences this, that the economic analysis influences this. Uh, and there will be some years where things show up in different ways. And again, the knock-on effect. So very much still one to watch and because of those reasons. Um, but interestingly, look at Facebook out of the top 10 mm-hmm. for the first time this year. And again, <coughs> when we consider that exponential rise and Disney in the top 10 for the first time. So it's also interesting to look at some of these, these shifts that are taking place. And obviously we know, we know why with, with, uh, with, with, uh, with Disney. But I think it's proof positive to your point as well that these brands are also not untouchable. Well, that's, what I, that's a point I wanted to ask actually about Amazon and Facebook in particular have mm. obviously been getting uh, a kicking in the press uh, for various reasons, whether it's business practices or, you know, destroying democracy, um, shall we say. Uh, so do these things factor into to how you judge these brands? Because, I mean, uh, overall, as we've been writing about at Stylus, most brands that we look at now are trying to do something purposeful, yes. are trying to have an impact yeah. in the world that's that's positive. Um, so when brands uh, have these bigger negative impacts like Facebook is at the moment, do you factor that in? Yes, absolutely. That that factors in. And again, because we do this, so that's what's interesting about the annual and also then the two decades. And bearing in mind that actually these three brands we're talking about, they weren't there from the beginning, right? So another interesting lens when we sort of potentially future uh, future forecast. I think the other important thing to bear in mind is that if you were to look at, and we do do this, so we track the best global brands list almost as if it were an exchange-traded fund <laughs> um, against the MSCI and the, S- and the S&P and others. And if you look at that as a red, sort of interbrand red line, 
they track above both of those and others. Which And the reason I mention that is that because, of course, also what we're looking at is this their ability as strong brands, why we call it the best global brands, to sustain that loyalty and relevance and to sustain that, that likelihood of generating brand value, not just sort of year on year, but also future forward, right? So, so again, what you will what you will see sometimes is the conversations we're ha- we're having now. It may hit next year, right? Unless again they're taking fast action. And I think the other thing is going back to the re- relevance and responsiveness point is how fast they're moving. I mean, let's look at this week. The we don't look we don't uh, uh, value marks marks and fences within this. Um, again, in terms of global brands, etc., um, it's not fully global, so it doesn't show up here, um, and other reasons. But a brand in a lot of trouble because they are they have massively underindexed on relevance to consumers. Who are they? Who who are they speaking to? Who are they relevant to? They've massively underindexed. They were very vocal about actually they weren't able to be responsive. They weren't able to translate the concepts and their strategic intents into tangible action that showed up with those consumers and actually again changed behaviour, yeah. made a difference, and. What we're noticing is, and it's absolutely obvious, is the acceleration of of what that means in terms of brands that will not only be in this top 100, but whether brands will be absent or present uh, from our from our retail landscape or brand landscape or otherwise is actually is actually getting um, getting sharper and faster. Julia, we talk a lot about brand relevance on Stylus, in particular when it comes to purpose. And things like, um, you know, having a positive social impact. And I'm interested in your perspective because you recently wrote a report around brands as change leaders where it was like, you know, brands are stepping in to fill the gap that that, um, governments and, and so on are leaving empty. If you could talk a little bit about that, I think it'd be quite interesting to, to, to think about that in terms of what's next for relevance when it comes to this sort of mm. brand list. Well, I do think it's interesting, um, the part you mentioned about fostering continued relevance. And I think a really important part of it is just having with the accelerated speed of relevance and how quick a turnover of a brand kind of, you know, cancelling itself by some bad marketing choices happens, is that especially public communication campaigns go hand in hand with an immediate and tangible impact. I mean, everybody, every single marketing blog last year, including the aforementioned report that I wrote, wrote about um, Domino's doing their paving for pizza um, activation where they just went around underfunded communities in the US and just filled in potholes. And it's a small, fun and relatively harmless sort of campaign to do, but it does generate something that means something to a consumer on the street. It's not a you know, a large projection of, you know, we're going to go CO neutral by 2040. It's literally, there's a hole and we filled it. Or a more recent campaign from Prada, I think they collaborated with National Geographic on this, where they're just helping to clear um, a lake off discarded fishing nets and then taking that nylon and using it to manufacture new materials for their own, um, I think, bag collection, if I remember correctly. And these sort of campaigns are actually understandable to a consumer and demonstrate a value that the brand is communicating in a, a way that is very factual and something that people can, in theory, touch as opposed to words and ephemeral digital promises are going to be very substantial looking forward in like the two to five year horizon. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think relevance and responsiveness, as you say, it, it's it's a ever evolving right i mean and and where do you think that's going to, to to go in the next 5 i mean think about the list in 5 10 years time what do, what will relevance mean then and will it will it be around 
making sure that you're part of the cultural conversation or will it actually be about filling in potholes and and changing the laws and that kind of thing? I think in a lot of ways it, it has been both and it, and, uh, and it will be both at, a, at exponential levels. Um, I love that you mentioned Prada, really interesting because they have just come out in the past few hours, right, in terms of their very interesting commitment to sustainability and what that means. Uh, and that shows up in a very different way. And in the context of we're looking at the world of luxury where even the three luxury groups are still almost competing on sustainability. You know, we we need to come together. Brands need to come together as people have come together and will need to continue to do so to really do more than shift the needle. Because there's only so much that individual brands can do. Let's be honest in terms of the wider game-changing things that we have needed to do for the past 20 plus years and more um, and need to do fast. Uh, and that togetherness, I think, I mean, it's interesting. We've, we also see greater openness, transparency, collaboration. That's been, a, that's been a significant shift in a lot of brands who have been doing well and leading, leading the way over the, past, over the past few years. And I absolutely um, put big bets on seeing a lot more of that um, and, and hopefully also some very interesting and, and creative new ways. But this notion of what we can do together, I really think is fascinating. So how what, what collaborations and partnerships will look like? Because again, if we look back, a lot of collaborations and partnerships have in the past been almost sort of panaceas for other things going on in the business rather than true commitments to innovation, true breakthroughs in creativity. And, and that's also what's interesting to your point about culture. I think my interest in, in luxury has always been through the lens of culture because if you go back to the origins of many of those brands, they were born of a desire to do something better or a quest for excellence in some way, whether it was a product or service. But that idea that we could actually set a new standard in something. So that that pivoting hard into the context of our times and the context of the times in which we're going um, and some of those we don't quite know where that might be, I think is really interesting. I think I think the final point on this is that if we go back to the whole origin of a brand, whether we take it back to sort of the ancient ancient Greece and Rome, right, where it was effectively a means to differentiate, is that brands have always polarised. Brands have always been for some people, not others. And, and I think in, in the likes of, obviously, we've all talked about the Nikes of the world, but what you stand for and what you stand against is something that we've only just started to see the surface of. To your point about Domino's, brilliant example of, and also making it relevant to the customers that they understood and the customers that they wanted to reach, whether they ended up being customers or not, but that that got the brand into the consideration set in a in, a, in a just a very pragmatic and meaningful way, uh, and so and, and and so how brands will play into this, I think, is really interesting. But that cultural relevance, absolutely, and that's also been a big part of. If you look at what Gucci's done in terms of connecting well, into I, culture, etc., <clears throat> and Vuitton, that's been a massive yeah. part of how they've changed the game over the past few years. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about this because obviously cultural relevancy and, and responsiveness is is a different thing in the luxury sector. Um, but nonetheless, you're, you're, you're saying that luxury brands are the top performing brands for the second year running. They're doing something right, clearly. So what is it that, that, that they get that other brands don't? And, it, and it's an interesting one because, you know, you, you, you might say, and we all might say, Wow, sort of, how is that still true in the context of our times when we have a lot, a lot of things to be worried about <laughs> as conscious consumers or otherwise, as citizens of this of this world? Why is it still that we're, we're seeing exponential rise in luxury? And and possibly one of the reasons is that as much as we have pivoted hard into a world that is much more virtual, 
um, connected, disconnected in some ways than ever before, we still are fundamentally human. And I've often said, actually, until such time as we are the robots, human behavior and human desires actually take a long time to change. And so there, we, we've, still, we've still seen it's tapping into all of our needs, whether it's a notion of simple aspiration for something other, whether it's art, beauty, truth, culture in some shape or form in our lives, uh, those luxury brands have, have tapped into it. The ones who have excelled, though, have done something uh, really, really interesting because they they have got closer to consumers than ever before. When we think about it, it really wasn't that long ago that actually luxury brands were much more these sort of temples of mystique where you don't dare cross, cross the threshold. They're sort of guarded palaces of excellence. Uh, and a lot of those brands figured out hard and fast, we've got to break that down. So you see haute couture dancing with street culture. You see uh, Vuitton shifting from suing uh, Supreme to playing hard with them, right? So there's, there's this, this connection into, into what culture means and actually having a relevant role within that uh, has, has, has been absolutely fascinating. The other piece of culture as goes back to our original conversation around not forgetting the employee in the process. So what one of the things that Gucci did, I think if you look at that co-leadership strategy, and it is a co-leadership strategy with Bizarri and Michele, is they have doubled down as much on the inside of the business as they have on the outside. So, you know, reconnecting the culture of our employees and our talent and our future talent also, thinking of where things are going. As, as much as reconnecting and, and hardwiring into the cultural zeitgeist. Julia, I mean, we're talking here about quite established brands. The, the list is, you know, full of legacy brands, established brands. But obviously we, and you particularly, have been writing about the, the new disruptors that are coming up, the likes of Glossier, um, the likes of uh, Away, and, you know, those sorts of direct-to-consumer brands who are doing things... Well, some would say not doing things that differently. They're just cutting out the middleman. Um, but nonetheless, they have been very interesting in the way that they've been creating community, um, distributing and marketing through social media, uh, and just tr tr trying to be a bit more friendly and human than we might expect from a brand. Do you see these as, as sort of trends that will grow and become, um, these brands will become the next you know, top 100 best global brands? Or do you think that the D2C idea is just a different shade of, of typical marketing? Um, I do think the key word here is community and not in the sort of box standard, oh yeah, we do listen to our fans way, but rather, I think partially through how different social and other digital platforms have been connecting people, we are creating environments where we just establish different narratives on what a value is and what is valuable and sort of time and passion and energy invested in an environment then translates into valuable constructs. You can see that um, through, like the aforementioned Glossier, who basically took the entire very engaged forum community to then create the most in-demand beauty and care products. I'm interested in, in, the, in the value that you're talking about yes. and how yeah. it relates to what the, how the consumer feels about that brand. I mean, do you talk to the brand customer as well when you're... Absolutely. I think, again, we were talking earlier on when you said, what is this list going to look like in 20 years? Pivots, pivots really hard into that. Uh, one of the things that we have been doing with um, a lot of the brands that we're working with, um, some of whom are, are on that top 100, some of whom are uh, maybe close to being on that 100 and in other spaces, is... Um, 
is a role of consumer in that because we think about it. Modern branding has only been around, right, for the past, what, 50, 60 odd years. And look at how fast that has changed from the age of identity where it was command and control of a one-way dialogue. Uh, brand then suddenly grew up through the likes of being able to value your brand. So brand gets into the boardroom, gets a little bit more serious. But the exponential shift comes when suddenly the control is in every one of our pockets. You know, we have, to, to some extent, also an individual brand, a personal brand, if you will. But, you know, our, our, our voice has risen to the extent where those conversations become not even a dialogue, right? The brand is at the centre of, of, of multiple conversations that it is no longer in control of. And that that letting go of that control, I think, is interesting. The brands, the brands who felt sort of doing a loss of control versus actually a release and sort of letting go and understanding how to operate within that new that brave new world, if you will. Uh, but co-creation with consumers is something we do an awful lot with and involving them in the process. And some of that is in the cases where we're looking at um, brands from scratch because it's fascinating when we're you know, working with some of those emerging brands, sometimes within um, uh, the, the legacy business, if you, if you will, if they're launching um, new innovations. Um, but, but certainly the, 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 the way in which consumers have... Um, have been much more vocal in terms of what they demand from brands, as you were saying, um, be it what you stand for and that clarity and commitment. And they will they will vote against that. And we've seen it in countless examples. I mean, obviously, you know, Burberry keeps being cited, but they were not the only ones who were destroying product for ages. I mean, that isn't that's been a thing in fashion since time immemorial. It's been absolutely wrong as part of and it's one of many things. Um, but the point being is that Consumers are vocal about that, and they are, uh, and they will put their spend in other places. Uh, we've seen uh, Burberry's an interesting one actually because they've come back for the first time in in four years. So their brand value obviously has been going on a slightly different trajectory, but a lot of things that they've been doing, and commitments to sustainability being one of them, actually um, helping to contribute to that. But so, but certainly again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier on: is that the brands that have understood the absolute imperative of being much more open, transparent, inclusive, collaborative are the ones who have shown exponential shifts in 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 their behaviours and, and that's now starting to translate into the bottom line and brand value. I think the cycle of um, consumer backlash and then brand recovery is really interesting. So have you seen any lasting effects on you know, the entire idea of cancel culture? Like has there been a brand that massively just messed up their own positioning in the market longer term than, you know, within the, the next two or three 24-hour news cycles? Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting. You touched on a, a really great point in terms of if we go back to those two decades, mm. it's only just over a, around about a third of the brands who were there from the beginning that, that are still there. Uh, not that this is the only bellwether, right? But it's also indicative in terms of permanence and change. Um, and, and and if you also look at the, the sort of types of brands that have come and gone, within within luxury space, and I say luxury broadly here because <laughs> there's, a, there's a range of sort of premium. Where do we begin? Where does premium um, begin and luxury end, if you will? Um, but Armani dipped out. Hugo Boss dipped out, Bulgari dipped out, Ralph Lauren. So, you know, the brands that have gone by the wayside over the years in luxury is is quite interesting. And they and what and what has driven, you know, that that disappearance, if you will, not forever necessarily from um, from the list, but it is interesting that once once you dip out, you know that that sort of recovery point is actually quite hard, quite hard to regain. It was interesting actually that Burberry didn't fall out of the top one hundred; they got quite close, but they sort of stayed in. Um, I mean, Ralph Lauren is interesting because 
of the things that that drove their brand value down consistently sort of over time. They had a few little peaks in between, but leadership, consistent things that you see that that, that drive that. Leadership challenges, changes in transition, um, again, going back to that absolute clarity and commitment on the inside of the business and then that disconnect with culture and you start hemorrhaging talent, um, confused sort of uh, uh, architecture, if you will, of their products and how consumers understand that. You start showing up massively over um, over discounted, over accessible. Um, and again, so how they manage the inclusivity and exclusivity of being a premium, if not luxury brand. And of course, Ralph Lauren is in a big turnaround mode right now. But it's interesting to your point because these are often um, textbook cases in terms of those short-term decisions that have actually a long-term impact on your brand value. Yeah. So but in a sense, it feels like um, strong brand positioning, as we mentioned earlier, you know, with the strong Nike case studies and whatnot, somewhat fe- fall into maybe new demands towards brands and audience segmentation. And sense, you know, the, the public is now so used to always finding little niche bits of entertainment and content and things that are just like them. And then maybe brands who are still aspiring to just appeal to the broadest possible common denominator are the ones that then fall by the wayside because they can't actually differentiate themselves against the mass of competitors. Absolutely. The stories around DTC are often, yes, yeah, they're exciting stories. But again, sustaining that is is not easy and there are different challenges. But what it does play into your point, Julie, was also say that this generation re- you know, what we value and why, what do we even need to own anymore? And if we can access everything on demand, whether it's rental or resale, it's also fascinating, again, to your point, Christian, around what do those those top 10 or top 100 brands look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Will they be about anything we own? And we've seen it been interesting to see the rise of Netflix into our top 100. We have Spotify. Uber just came in this year for the first time. Um, and the other interesting stat is last year we measured of the total aggregated brand value of the top 100, the value locked up in subscription, it was 29% last year, which had gone up exponentially from from previous years. It's now well over a third. So also interesting in terms of the business models underpinning some of these brands. And that's both in legacy businesses, because bear in mind, Adobe pivoted hard in terms of what they did there. So that's also fascinating in terms of how the business models are operating underneath these top 100. But somehow the pivot to service from product is also then placing yet greater brand responsibility and legacy responsibility on yeah, these brands because absolutely. there's massive um, concerns right now, especially with the new launch of Disney Plus, of you know content that audiences happen to love, you know their favorite movies mm-hmm. just disappearing off a platform just because the rights have run out or the company has decided that it's time to go into the vault. And I think in order to sustain a happy body of consumers and customers, I think they will really heavily have to invest in more social and community listening and actually closely collaborating with them and to build a relationship so they can't really continue the old paradigms of top down and we're dishing out what you can have and then taking it back because that's the reality in rental scenarios where it is entirely impossible that people lose what they feel is the physical ownership of that thing they love and then that just leads to brand conflict. That's so true and it's also interesting in terms of the, the shift that happens hard and fast around what Disney was known for and has been known for for many years. And so, again, it's interesting, this tension. It's beautiful that you picked up on that because 
you could say, oh, that's exciting. Disney hit the top 10 for the first time ever. And you can see part of where that's going. But absolutely, those are the challenges because this is a business and a brand that has excelled in delighting consumers, uh, over-exceeding expectations and doing everything possible around that. Now operating in a, in, in, in a very different ecosystem. And how do you how do you carry forward a bit of, you know, that, that brand DNA? And again, to your point, you know, what, what makes you unique and what polarizes? And that's also where we've seen brands either continue to excel or they or they come unstuck hard and fast or they come unstuck a little bit over time well i'm going to stick my neck out and say that i think disney may even be number one in 10 years time um and i think we should finish with your predictions for who you think might be number one in 10 years time will it still be apple it's inter- I, I would love it to be disney too actually for the same reasons we were just talking about also you know i'd love it to, i would love it to be somebody we don't know or a brand that is is not there in that in that consideration set. Let's bear in mind, app, app, we weren't talking about Apple twenty years ago no. when we were talking about this list. So, I'd love it to be a big bet on 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 the unknown. If Disney continues to be really clever about the entertainment properties they take into the larger corporation, then yes. Otherwise, I'd say it's thus far unknown gaming entity. Yeah. Because interactive narratives and the way they weave into our everyday and our constantly accessible, especially with the advent of 5G and cloud gaming, are going to take a huge chunk of people's hearts because they will be able to interact with those characters they come to love or impersonate those characters and build an entire world with their friends in digital and AR spaces. And that has massive emotional sales power. Brilliant. Well, I love the fact that, you know, we probably don't really know yet Uh, And it could be something completely new. I mean, that's the beauty of brand building, right? Um, Thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. Thanks to my guests, uh, Rebecca Robbins and Julia Ahrens. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 